A reading from the book of Hebrews, beginning in the 12th chapter. But you have come to the Mount of Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, this evening we're doing something a little bit different uh, for all souls. We're beginning a seven-week sermon series on worship. Toward the beginning of your order of worship, you'll find a brief introduction there that uh, I hope you'll find helpful or at least you can look over it as I start to bore you, perhaps. Um, and for those of you that, are, that, that call All Souls Home and will be here over the next seven weeks, I highly encourage you, both this week and in the coming weeks, to read over the scripture lessons that we just heard. We just heard a lot of scripture read. And I would encourage you strongly, look over these passages during the week. Ask the Spirit of Christ to illumine your heart and your mind as you consider what it is that God is telling his people in his word. I think it's fitting that today is Trinity Sunday and a day in which we will baptize two children because today is a day that we peer in an intentional way into the mystery that is God's existence as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And tonight we're going to attempt to sketch a picture of what worship is, and the starting point of what worship is, is always with God. Worship is always a response to God. And so while this evening we may not talk directly about the doctrine of the Trinity as would usually happen on Trinity Sunday, the Trinity is there. And the scriptures that we heard read are lurking in the background of everything that I want to say this evening. And this evening I'd like us to consider quite simply, maybe, what is worship? What is worship? 
One of the simplest definitions of worship is to ascribe worth to something or someone. It's to give a weightiness or a value to something that actually orders how we go about our lives. One good Anglican bishop said that worship is to be led into the Father's presence in Christ through the Spirit and to live the life of God. Because to enter God's presence is to be encompassed by him. Worship is to enter into his presence and take on his life. We talked about this last summer in in different words, but we said over and over again that God's greatest desire for all human beings is that they should live a life hidden with Christ in him. That is the goal. The reading that we had from Genesis this evening starts the process, and the goal is that all things may live and flourish in Christ. The telos, the destination of human life, is the life of God. This evening, however, we're going to go a layer deeper, and we're going to say that worship is that life. The life hidden with Christ in God is worship, and worship is life. Now, I usually try to avoid being this on the nose, but there's an important underlying distinction that I think we need to grasp right at the very beginning here. Most of you that I know, anyway, we were raised in Christian traditions that valued worship generally as a means to some other end. Is worship important? Sure, we would say. Why? Well, for some of us in the, in the churches in which we were raised, it's because it fosters community. And the church, as we all know, is a community. So going to church is about strengthening the bonds of community. Or perhaps for some of you, being Christian is really about doing acts of service and love in our neighborhoods and cities. And so going to church is about getting filled up so that you can go back out there and love and serve our neighbors. Or perhaps being Christian is really about personal sanctification and edification. It's about growing in the intellectual and moral life. And so going to church is about enlightenment. It's about encouragement. It's instruction on how to live the moral life, how to think better, how to think our way to God. But here's the issue. Worship can never be a means to another end. The reason is very simple. The other end is that thing that you actually worship. So you cannot turn the church's liturgy into a means to some other end because then we are worshiping something other than God. If community is the thing that you're after, frankly, there are much easier ways to get it. Join an adult dodgeball league or do pub trivia. There are great avenues for connecting with other human beings that are frankly a lot less awkward than standing shoulder to shoulder with people singing out loud, right? If a better world is the goal, the ultimate goal, love and service to others, there are incredible ways to spend your time. One of the reasons I love Portland is because we are a city that has a list of nonprofits that you could barely wade through. You could spend your entire professional career loving and serving other people. And again, sitting here while a guy in a robe swings incense around and pours water on people's heads is not a good use of your time if the ultimate goal is a better neighborhood. You could be out there right now. If growing intellectually and morally is your chief concern, guess what? Good news, you don't even have to read books anymore. You can watch YouTube and learn how to live a philosophically moral and upright life. You can listen to podcasts by the thousands 
And frankly, confessing your sins each week and hearing that you're forgiven might actually be a hindrance on your journey towards self-improvement. Why not just listen to something in the car? Now listen, this is in no way condemnatory. All of us are here with mixed motives. Me, perhaps most of all. All of us are here with mixed motives. There is no avoiding it. But what we have to get firmly in our imaginations is that worship is an end in itself, not a means to some other end. Worship is our holistic response to the holiness and glory of God. Worship is our holistic response to the holiness and glory of God. Now, in the coming weeks, we're going to look more at what is entailed by our holistic response. But for tonight, I want to focus on God's holiness and glory. But before we can even get there, we do have to recognize explicitly, worship is a response. God reveals himself, and we respond. He is the initiator, not us. Alan Ross writes that to say God is holy is to ascribe a uniqueness to him that is almost incomprehensible. To say God is holy is not one of the many descriptions of God. It is the summary designation of all that God is and known to be in contrast to creation. God revealed his holiness to the people of Israel by being a pillar of cloud and of fire. He was both illuminating and confounding, but he was completely other. His holiness is a uniqueness that is almost incomprehensible. The talk of God's holiness is to speak of his singularity. It's to say with the psalmist that the Lord is exalted over all the nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? The one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth. The rhetorical question's answer is no one. There is no one like Yahweh. As the prophet Isaiah wrote, this is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. When we say the Sanctus, which we will do in a moment, we are quoting from Isaiah's vision and St. John the Divine's vision of God in his temple. And when they hear the angelic chant of holy, 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 that three times repetition is a Hebrew way of saying God is holy to the power of ten. God is holy to the nth degree. God is holy beyond recognition. It's holiness to the max. It's shorthand for saying there is no one like God, there is no one like God, there is absolutely nothing like God. Nothing. It is God alone who speaks the universe into existence. All that is, is fixed and established by the word of his mouth. If God's holiness is a way of talking about his essential nature, which our only way of talking about is to say that it's not like anything else, right? God is unique. He is other. He is transcendent. If, if, if God's holiness is a way of talking about his essential nature, who he is, then to speak of his glory is to speak of his holiness on display. 
It's what he looks like. So again, in the Sanctus, we say, Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, what? Heaven and earth are full of your glory. The universe is full of the manifestation of God's uniqueness, power, and beauty. That's what it means that the earth is full of his glory. It's revealing to us his holiness, his uniqueness. Consider God's questions to Job. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were, what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light and their upraised arm is broken. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. What is the way to the abode of light? And where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths of their dwellings? Surely you know, for you were already born. You've lived so many years. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserve for times of trouble, for days of war and battle? What is the place, the way to the place where the light, lightning is dispersed or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? Who cuts a channel for the torrents of the rain and a path for the thunderstorm to water a land where no one lives, an uninhabited desert to satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout grass? Does the rain have a father? Who fathers the drops of dew? From whose womb comes the ice? Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens when the waters become hard as stone, when the surface of the deep is frozen? Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you, here we are? Who can tip over the water jars of the heavens when the dust becomes hard and the clods of the earth stick together? There is no one like God. There is no one like God. There is no one like God. He is holy. He is utterly unique. And the entire universe is singing to us of his uniqueness. That is his glory. Miraculously, it is not just that heaven and earth are filled with his glory and his splendor and his power and his beauty and his wisdom. But there is also a sense in which God's glory signifies his special presence. Though he is the one who is throughout the entire earth, he also dwells specially with his people. Consider what is recorded for us in Exodus 24. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it. 
and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. Moses sat silent before the glory of the Lord for six days. On the seventh day, God called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. And then Moses entered the cloud as he went up the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Right before our lesson from the the book of the Hebrews began, the writer was talking about this mountain, Mount Sinai. And then the writer shifts gears and and he says, the mountain that those who are in Christ have been brought to is so much more glorious, so much more life-giving than that mountain. You have been brought to the heavenly city. And it is this overwhelming sense of God's otherness that results in worship. We have to be able to recall that God is completely holy. There is no one like him. And when we do, our only response is worship. And by the way, throughout Scripture, almost always, worship carries the connotation of bowing, kneeling, prostrating. As I said before, we're going to spend time in the coming weeks talking about what our response in worship looks like. But here's a hint. It involves a whole person, a body, a mind, a spirit, a will, all of you. That entire passage from Genesis makes no sense if you can worship God with just your mind and your will. Your body has to be engaged. Now, tonight, there won't be a conclusion. In fact, if it weren't for the liturgy, we're going to leave off in a rather uncomfortable place. Because coming into the awareness of God's holiness and seeing the raging fire of his glory may not hit us all at once, like it did with Isaiah, who saw the train of his robe fill the temple, or like John, who saw the Lamb with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits, the fullness of God. We may not in our lifetime see anything like the transfiguration, where we fall down like dead men in fear. But when we come into contact with the holiness and glory of the divine, we cannot help but feel undone no matter how small that contact may have been. And herein lies the problem of the human condition. Because you and I, we were made to be in his presence. We were made to see his glory. We were made to worship him truly and purely and be with him, and yet we have rebelled, and what? Now no man may see God and live. We've got a big problem. God's holiness is an all-consuming fire. How could any of us stand before him? It's grace. Christ has done everything. I hope that you'll come back over the next few weeks and marvel together at the provision that the holy, glorious God of the universe has made for the entire world in Christ. 
In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.